Happy Sabbath. Um, but have you come to the place to recognize that the sanctuary is a mechanism of instruction that God has given to us to help us understand the plan of salvation? And uh, we need to understand it in an effort to cooperate uh, with him intelligently. Now, I shared with you in the last presentation, if you weren't here for the last presentation, this one might be a little tough. Uh, but in our last presentation, we, uh, I shared with you a picture I wanted to, sh- to, to show you. Do you remember that? I, I do have the picture here. Before I show it to you, I want to give the class some, uh, some quiz questions. Uh, in the sanctuary, where did you find the presence of God? In the most holy place. Very good. Let's be more specific. Where in the most holy place? Above the mercy seat. Okay, can you be more specific? What else? Between the angels. Very good. So, uh, between the angels, there were two metallic angels there. Between the angels was the presence of God. It was known as the mercy seat, also known as his throne. Very good. Now, in the book of Revelation, uh, that, that, that picture is expanded when it talks about the angels in heaven, and it mentions surrounding the throne are four living creatures. How many remember that? Raise your hand a little higher than that if you could, so I feel better about asking the question. Very good. Uh, and then in the book of Revelation, it also mentions God's throne. You remember that? Do you remember anything particular about God's throne mentioned in the book of Revelation? It, there's a color to it. Do you remember? Oh, we're going to have to look it up if you don't remember. Now, who remembers the color of the throne? The Bible mentions the color of the throne. Okay, I heard it. It's white. The great white throne judgment. Does that sound familiar now? Raise your hands. Okay. The reason I share this with you is because we talked about, we showed how uh, one of the identifying marks of the the entity in Revelation 13 and Daniel 7 was blasphemy. And blasphemy, as we study the Bible, was claiming to be God when you're not, <laughs> or um, t- claiming the prerogative of God. And we, we looked at a number of quotes. The reason I share this with you is because you need to understand what the Bible says about God's throne room so that this picture has makes some sense. And you'll notice the metallic angels on either side You'll notice the four that are seated around the throne. What color is the throne? Is white. And uh, it's very interesting. In fact, uh, Arlen sent me a video of, uh, this is Pope Francis, but it was Pope uh, Benedict in a similar, it was on this throne, but, uh, but the priest walks up with his censer and, uh, and waves the incense in front of him. And you remember that uh, the high priest did that uh, on the Day of Atonement bef- uh, before the presence of God. Uh, so I just wanted to show that picture to you. We do have quite a bit uh, to cover, and, uh, and I just want to say that if you're a student of the Word, you're, you're really not going to have a problem with the presentation today. If you're not a student of the Word, you're going to have a big problem with the presentation today. And this is part two of our previous presentation Uh, which was identifying the end-time power that opposes the heavenly sanctuary. So with that, I'm going to kneel uh, for a word of prayer. I'm going to ask you to join me, if you would. Let's uh, kneel before God, and I would like to give you a chance to pray for the speaker and yourselves as well. Father in heaven, we come to you with a heart filled with gratitude for a love that will not let us go. We need you, Lord. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. You are uh, revealing these things to us because there is a crisis that's coming upon the world and you want us to be informed so that we can make an intelligent decision. And you've given to us your Bible, which is uh, the determiner uh, of what is true. It is the great lie detector. And through your word, we come in contact with your mind. You've preserved it through the centuries so that we can intelligently, Lord, know your, your, your will for us and to cooperate with you. Now, Father, again, we're reminded that uh, I'm not the teacher here. It's the Holy Spirit who is. It's not by might, not by power. It's by your spirit. And so we need your presence. Thank you for the blood of Christ. We pray for the blood of Jesus to wash away our sin, Lord. We need it. We need to be cleansed, uh, not just our books, but our hearts and minds so that, uh, Lord, your presence here will not be a consuming fire to us. We pray for your presence, Father. 
Uh, we pray for your angels to be here to impress our hearts. We, we pray, Father, that you will be with the speaker, that he will not in any way interfere with what you're wanting to do here. Now, we thank you. And Lord, I want to give the congregation a chance to pray for themselves and also for the speaker. Father, I just pray now that you will shut us in the secret place of the Most High, that we can abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Lord, we have visitors here today that didn't hear part one, and so this might be a tough pill to swallow. And I pray that you will bring together the things you've taught them in the past, that this will make sense, as only you can do it. And again, Lord, bring to my mind the words that you would have spoken in any illustrations. Help us, Father, now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last presentation, we talked about that power that opposes the, the, heavenly, the heavenly sanctuary, blinding God's people to it. Revelation 13 in the Bible reveals to us a crisis, the final crisis that Earth's history will experience, the final crisis that the people of God will experience. And, and in that crisis, it mentions a power symbolized by a beast, the first beast, anyway, there are two beasts mentioned. The first beast uh, is, is, the end time, is one of the major end-time players. And Revelation 13 gives 10 identifying characteristics of this player. And uh, the reformers recognized this, uh, this power as being antichrist. Antichrist, we learn, means against Christ or taking the place of Christ. And we find that this end-time player attempts to do both. And so there were 10 characteristics. One, we learned it would rise out of the sea, which was a, a, a multitude of people, an area densely populated, that it would receive its power, seat, and authority from the dragon. And the Bible pulls back the curtain to show who, this, who the devil gave his power to. We learned that it would become a worldwide power. We learned that it is guilty of blasphemy. We learned that it rules for 42 prophetic months, which equals 1,260 Years, very good students. Uh, we learned that it would receive a deadly wound. It would appear that this power was over, but then it would revive, it would heal. We learned that it is a religious power because it seeks worship. Uh, we learned in that chapter that it is also a persecuting power and that this power also is led by a supreme man and has a mysterious number, uh, which is 666. Now, if you have any competent knowledge of Scripture, any confidence in it, by the way, and any competent knowledge of, biblical, of, of world history, you will know that there is only one entity that fits all ten of those identifying marks. And that entity we learned was the papacy. This, this, the papacy is a false system. Remember, we're not talking about people. Uh, I was part of the Catholic Church. How many of you here were part of the Catholic Church that came out? All right. It's not about people. It is about a system. Now, this system, what it did is it cast truth to the ground. What does that mean? It set up its own system of salvation. It has its own way of dealing with sin, its own atonement. It has its own high priest. That's what Pontificus Maximus means, high priest. And it has its own priestly system. Today, what we're going to look at is the 11th identifying feature, and that is the mark of the beast. It's a mark of the papacy. What is this thing that we are to avoid receiving? We are learning that the sanctuary in heaven is actually God's control center where he is orchestrating the plan of salvation. It is God's headquarters. So it's understandable why the devil would want to knock it out. Right? If you're in war, you want to knock out your, your opponent's headquarters. Isn't that true? Now, the book of Revelation refers to the heavenly sanctuary repeatedly. And this is not exhaustive. I just quickly put this together. 
Book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, mentions the heavenly sanctuary. Chapters 3, verses, verse 12. Chapter 4, 1 through 6. Chapter 7, verse 15. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 19. Chapter 14, verses 15 and 17. Chapter 15, verses 5 and 8. Chapter 16, verses 1 and 17. Chapter 21, verse 22. The sanctuary in heaven plays a central role because it is the control center of the plan of salvation. That is where Jesus is working to save us. Now, <clears throat> Revelation 13 also, uh, as I mentioned, reveals to us earth's final crisis. My friends, there is a test coming. You remember when you were in college that you made sure to put those tests on the calendar because you didn't want to get caught by surprise. I'm letting you know and the Bible, Jesus, God in heaven wants us to understand there is a test coming. Now, the devil doesn't want us to know this. He wants us to be surprised by the test. God doesn't. There is a test coming. And, and at the end of that test, there's going to be a group that's going to receive the mark of the beast. But interestingly, how many people, even people who are unchurched, know about the mark of the beast? But the Bible tells us that there's another group that receives the seal of God. Isn't it funny how nobody talks about the seal, but everybody seems to talk about the mark? Well, it's kind of hard to receive the seal if you don't know about the seal. Today, we're going to learn about the seal so that we don't have to be unprepared for the crisis that is before us because God doesn't want us to be unprepared. So we are going to look at the mark of the beast and the seal of God. We're going to learn it is a test of loyalty. You have your sheets with you. Let's take a look at question number one. Who will be protected through the seven last plagues? Okay, we know just as plagues were poured out on Egypt to open the way for the children of Israel to leave Egypt, there will be plagues at the end of time that will open the way for God's people to go with Jesus and go home. Can you say amen? But we don't want to receive those plagues, right? So who will be protected through the seven last plagues? Revelation 7, uh, verse 3 says, Do not harm the earth, the sea, the trees, till we have what? Sealed the servants of our God on their what? Foreheads. You know, let's take a look at that. Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at a number of texts, so keep your Bibles handy. Revelation chapter 7 is the, ch the, the chapter that describes the sealing process. And uh, let's just step back a little bit because uh, in, sim in symbols, what the, what, what the writer John is telling us here is there's going to be a ceiling in preparation for this incredible crisis that's going to burst upon the world. So if you're there in Revelation 7, please say amen. amen. All right. Beginning with verse 1, John is writing, After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Let me push pause there. My friends, the only reason why our world has not been plunged into chaos is because God is holding evil in check. Number two, then I saw another angel ascending from the east. Uh, I find that interesting. He's ascending from where? What direction then is he heading? He's heading west. Could it be? that the Lord is trying to communicate to us that those who by faith are entering into the sanctuary experience are the ones that get the seal. Very interesting. Then I, uh, then I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees. What's the next word? Till. Until we have sealed the servants of our God in the foreheads. The sealing. What we're going to discover here, in, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes that when we accept Christ as our Savior, that the Holy Spirit is given to us for sealing. We're going to learn what that seal is. We're going to discover that what sealing is, it's settling in to the truths of God. Settling in so well that we will not, we will not be moved by error that we will be loyal to God no matter what. But, but we need to figure out here what exactly is this seal. Aren't we glad that we don't have to sit around a table and guess? The Bible tells us what the seal is. What is the seal the righteous have in their foreheads? Isaiah 8, 
16 says, bind up the testimony, seal the, the law among my disciples. What's the seal, my friends? It is God's law. You see, when we give our lives to Christ and we allow him, we surrender our lives to Jesus, God begins a work in our life of settling us into the truth. He settles us in. I want to show you some verses here. Uh, if you turn with me um, to, by the way, the sealing. This is actually talking about the new covenant. Were you aware of that? Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. This is part of the new covenant, dear friends, where God places his law, where? Our hearts and our minds, right? Remember that uh, we seal, the sealing of God's people is where? In their foreheads. So take a look at Revelation 10. Excuse me, Hebrews 10, I'm sorry. Hebrews 10, verse 16 says, um, let's, uh, let's pick up in verse 14. For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said, for he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he, he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. You see, what's happening here is when we give our lives to Christ, a process begin, begins that we refer to as sanctification where God begins to get us in harmony with himself. Remember, the law of God is a transcript of the character of God. The law reveals to us who God is. God is eternal, the law is eternal. I showed you all of those verses that... Describe God, also describe his law. You remember that? It's a revelation. So what God is doing, he's working to make us like him. It's that process. Now, I want to show you another text. Open your Bibles, Revelation chapter 22. Remember, where is the sealing, where is that law sealed in God's servants? The heart, which in the forehead, which is, is basically in the Hebrew idiom, mind is, is the same thing. Uh, let's take a look, Revelation chapter 22. If you're there, say amen. Take a look at verse 4. This is an amazing verse. In fact, let's back up to 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God in the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Isn't that interesting? You see, in the Bible, name represented the character of the individual. So what is being placed in the forehead is the character of God, which is revealed in his, his law. And so what it's saying is, is that the people of God are going to have their characters like their heavenly father. They're going to be chips off the old block, as they say. Are you with me? See, that's the work of the Holy Spirit is to do that in the heart, in the mind, as we read God's word and we yield, I want to show you one more text here because this leads us to something. And what I'm going to show you now is not being preached from pulpits. Revelation chapter 22, take a look at verse 14. Blessed are those who, what's the next word? Do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. You see, my friends, the rebellion began in heaven and we learned that rebellion is sin and we learned that sin is the transgression of God's And that's what the angels in heaven did. And when they did, they were expelled. And no one is going in rebelling. The gates are open to those who have yielded their lives to God and have allowed the Holy Spirit to write his law upon our hearts 
in our, in our minds. Compliance. Sin is rebellion. Don't forget that. How many here need a new heart? We all do, don't we? And God has promised to give it to those who are willing to cooperate with Him. So incredibly important. All right. So in a seal, in a seal, typically, uh, normally a seal contains three things. A seal contains the name of the person in charge. It, it, a seal uh, also contains the office of the person in charge. And a seal also reveals the territory that the, that the person in charge governs over. And a, an example of that, and it's in your notes, is Ezra 1.1, where it says King Cyrus of Persia. There, all three elements of a seal are right there. Cyrus, his name, king, his title, Persia, his territory. Did you catch it? If you don't get that one, get this one then. I think you'll catch this. This one is one we're all familiar with, and that is the seal of the president of the United States, Donald Trump, name, president, title, United States of America, his territory. Did you catch that? Are you with me so far? Did I go too fast for you? All right. So where then in the law is God's seal? We have to have those three elements, and that's question now number uh, three for us. Which of the Ten Commandments contains the element of a seal? And we find it in Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Brothers and sisters, the only place where you find all three elements of a seal is in the fourth commandment. It's the only place. There you find his name, the Lord, and then it said made, okay? When somebody is a maker, he is a creator, all right? And then it tells you his territory, heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. In other words, everything. It is in the fourth commandment that the seal of God is found. By the way, if you're the devil, which commandment are you going after? You're going to go after the one that identifies his authority. All right, let's take a look here at number four. What is God, what has God given as a special sign of his power? Ezekiel 20 verse 12 says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And so the Sabbath is the sign that God is the one who's going to transform your life. It's not Monday, friends. It's not Tuesday. It's not Wednesday. It's Sabbath. How do I know? Because God said it. God supercharged that day with something he did not supercharge any other day with. That, that day is the sign that he transforms us. Why? Because the Sabbath is about a relationship with God. The Sabbath is a date every week that God wants to have with you to spend time with you, to talk with you, and you can listen to him through his word and through his creation, and by beholding, you become, that's what Paul tells us. The Sabbath is about a relationship, and we are transformed by that relationship, and we will not be transformed without that relationship. By the way, if, uh, if you had uh, your special someone in your life had uh, made a date with you on Saturday, and you decided to show up on Sunday, how's that going to go? Are we listening? God made the date. Our job is to meet him on the date he set up. Does that make sense? Very, very important. Let's take a look at the next one. Ezekiel 20.20 says, Hollow my Sabbath, and they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. The Sabbath is a sign that you and I serve the God of heaven, the creator. That's what the Sabbath is. How do I know? Because God said it. And, uh, and if we didn't get it in Ezekiel 20, verse 12, God repeats it here in Revelation. Oops. Oh, did I not have that other text there? I don't. I, I missed Exodus. All right, we'll read it out of our sheet here. Exodus 31, 13 says, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generation that you may know that I am the Lord who 
sanctifies you. You think that this is important? He keeps repeating it? Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a look at the note right below number four. God clearly states that he gave the Sabbath as a sign of his power to create and sanctify. It is his seal and mark of authority. Do you know, if you take out the fourth commandment, if you take out the fourth commandment out of the Ten Commandments, it's just another set of laws, of rules. If you take out the fourth, you, ta- you, you, ha- you, you have, just, said, uh, you have a, 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 just another set of rules. But, but what the fourth commandment does is it reveals to us our relationship to the one who gave the Ten Commandments. He created us. He is our creator. And, and in that revelation, we come to recognize his authority over us. He has a right because he gave me life. Does this make sense? So if you take that out, it's just another set of rules. So this is God's seal. It's found in God's law and more specifically in the fourth commandment and God wants to write it in our hearts and minds and it is written there as we make the choice every day to yield our lives to him. We are settling in to the truth. Is this making sense? Let's take a look now. We're going to transition here. We're going to take a look at the mark of the beast. Now, I, I want to stress again, we're not talking about individuals in this system. We're talking about a system. Very, very important. So let's take a look at question number five. What does the second beast of Revelation 13 force all to, re- to receive? Now, in the context of our lesson on the sanctuary, uh, we have not focused in on the second beast of Revelation. And maybe I need to add it. But in Revelation 13, there are two beasts. The first beast we have identified is the papacy. But the second beast is going to give power to the first beast. And what we're going to discover uh, in studying that is that that second beast represents the United States of America. More specifically, apostate Protestantism in the United States of America. You see, the United States is the most powerful nation in the world. Not only economically, but also uh, militarily. It is the most powerful. It's the most influential country uh, in the whole world. Whichever way the, the U.S. rolls, everybody else rolls. Anybody notice that? Incredibly influ- influential. And though she started out as a country that loved freedom, that text tells us that she, she would begin speaking as a lamb but would end up speaking like the dragon, which is a symbol of the prince of darkness. And we're going to find that Protestantism... Um, is going to end up uh, embracing Catholicism again. And that's exactly what we're seeing, my friends. We we have forgotten that uh, many times when I'm doing these types of series and I have people from different denominations, uh, I will ask them, are you Protestants? And they'll tell me yes. And then I'll ask them, what does it mean to be a Protestant? What does that mean? And they'll look at me and blink. They have no idea. It means to protest, I tell them. Oh, yes, yes, that's it. We're protesting. Okay, what are you protesting? I mean, save the whales is not what this thing's about. What are you protesting? In, 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 the, the reformers were protesting basically three things. I realize that Martin Luther mentioned five, but two of those are caught up in these three. But it mainly sur- uh, sur- uh, revolved around three things. Number one was the Bible alone. Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone as the guide of life. Uh, They recognized that the word of God was fully authoritative, infallible, inerrant. It was the GPS for the Christian. The Christian world today has forgotten that. Secondly, he said uh, that it was faith alone. You are not saved by works. You are saved by having confidence in Christ's works. Are you with me? Now, it does impact what you do. What we know impacts what we do, but that's not what saves you. It's what Jesus did that saves you. And we accept that by faith. And then the last thing is that it's Jesus alone. Are you with me? And so the Reformation were protesting that there was a false system that set up that said no, salvation is through the church. It's the mass. You got to go to the confessional. Talk to the priest. You got to accept everything the high priest tells you, which is the Pope. That was a false system, and they protested it. 
And so today, most of the um, Protestants are no longer Protestants. As a result, we're seeing a reunification of the, of the mainline Sunday-keeping churches with the Pope. By the way, I, I introduced a book to you last week. Uh, there was a, a, a scholar, Dave Hunt, he's a Baptist scholar, who protested this. And he wrote a scathing bu- a book, powerful book. And the book was called A Woman Rides the Beast. A very powerful, powerful book. But, but Dave Hunt saw what the, what the Christian churches were doing and he was trying to sound the alarm. So let's read this. What, uh, what, uh, what does the second beast of Revelation 13 force all to receive? Revelation 13, 6 says, and he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. This mark is the mark of the beast. It's the mark of the papacy. And there's all kinds of weird stuff floating around out there as to what that mark is. The devil is a master at camouflage and smokescreens. The devil does not want us to know what it is. Some of you may remember when the Social Security numbers came out, people were hollering that that was the mark of the beast. I won't ask you to raise your hands. Um, I remember when credit cards started coming out and people started talking about those as being the mark of the beast. And, uh, and then uh, barcodes. I remember when barcodes at the grocery store came out, that was the mark of the beast. And by the way, those people that believe that, and I guess stop buying food. <laughs> but now, what if people are saying is the mark of the beast? It's the computer chip being implanted in someone's hand or somewhere, right? Oh, no, on their forehead, right? That's what they're saying is the mark. But if you really want to know what the mark of the beast is, you've got to go to the beast and ask him. So let's take a look at number six. What is the mark of the beast? Let's let the beast tell us what it is. Notice the following section from a Catholic catechism. By the way, a catechism is a little book of instruction to help you understand Catholicism, to bring you up to speed on what you need to know and believe. And they use a Q&A format, much of like what we're using here, question and answer. It's a great format for teaching. So here's the catechism uh, question. Uh, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Uh, Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Clear as crystal. Now, I want to share something here that you may not be aware of. This catechism is a catechism that predates 1960. All your catechisms prior to 1960 are going to say it like this, as clear as crystal. Once you get into 1960, it changes. And the reason being is in 19, uh, up to, before 1960, there, the, the Protestants and Catholics held, the, held one another at knife point. Okay? Protestants, uh, Catholics viewed Protestants and referred to them as apostates, heretics. Protestants viewed Catholics as non-Christians, as pagans. You need to understand this. Some of you younger folk, you're, you're living in a different era now. But this was old, old school America. Okay? Your, your, your Catholic boy did not date the, the Protestant girl. Did not happen in this country. There was a great deal of antagonism because of the history but what happened in 1960 is that the Vatican the, the, the Vatican, the Catholic Church came together and they came up with what was called Vatican II. You can write that down if you want to do a little research later. And in Vatican II, they made a decision to change their attitude towards the Protestants. And instead of calling them heretics and apostates, they began to refer to them as wayward children. And they changed their, their catechism from speaking so clearly and harshly and they began to adapt a, a, a Protestant view which was that the day was changed because Jesus rose from the dead in an effort to lure in the Protestant world. Did it work? It has worked and it is working. Um, but here clearly is spelled out and I have a number of catechisms. I think I have them in my office. They clearly state it. You have to go pre-1960. Uh, question, have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precepts? In other words, what right does the Catholic Church have to institute uh, uh, any type of uh, religious festivals and whatnot? And uh, here's the answer. Had she not such power, 
she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree. That's not true. We don't all agree. With her, she could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day, a change for which there is no scriptural authority. So what she's saying is, the proof that she has the right to do what she wants in, re- in religious matters or secular is the fact that she was able to change God's law and got away with it. The world is following it. Let's take a look here at some quotes. Does, what does the Roman Catholic Church claim is the sign of its authority? I want you to look at this because I'm going to show you the rest of the story later. I'm going to show you, there's a section I'm not showing you right now. Catholic Record, uh, September 1, 1923. The church is above the Bible. And this transference of the Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Uh, Priest uh, uh, Enright from Kansas City, Missouri. This was actually written, or this, this was a speech that was given in 1893, but follow carefully. Uh, he, it's entitled, Offer Never Taken. I have repeatedly offered $1,000 to anyone who can prove to me from the Bible alone that I am bound to keep Sunday holy. There is no such law in the Bible. It is a law of the Holy Catholic Church alone. The Bible says, remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. The Catholic Church says, no. By my divine power, I abolish the Sabbath day and command you to keep holy the first day of the week. And lo, the entire civilized world bows down in reverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. The change of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday is a mark of authority of the Vatican and the mark of the beast. The central issue regarding the mark of the beast, my friends, is worship. Now, here's the rest of the story. Oh, no, wait, not yet. Webster's Dictionary, 1929 edition. Uh, If you look up the word Sunday, Sunday so-called because this day was anciently dedicated to the sun or to its worship, the first day of the week. Not the seventh, friends. It's the first. It's very interesting. If you remember, King's... um, when we were looking at the sanctuary, remember there was only one entrance into the sanctuary and it was on the east side. Do you remember that? Remember I shared there were two reasons for that. Number one is because uh, when Adam and Eve sinned and they had to leave, they left the Garden of Eden out the east gate. East comes to represent walking away from God. So if they want to come back, they had to go which direction? West. And so... In the sanctuary, there was only one entrance and it was on the east end. Coming west, the sanctuary teaches us the steps back to God. But we also shared there was another reason. And that was because when Israel entered into Canaan, the competing religion of Canaan was Baal worship. Baal worship is sun worship. And the sun worshiper would face the east, but the worshiper of Jehovah would face west. It was a safeguard for the people of God that they wouldn't get caught up in the popular religion around them. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing new under the sun. The competing worship for the worship of God today is still Baal worship. There is nothing new. The devil just sophisticated it and repackaged it, but there is nothing new. Let's take a look here. Uh, at number seven. Is either the mark of the beast or the seal of God visible? You know, it's interesting. We always have these, these, these pictures of some guy with one of those grocery label things going ching, ching, ching on people's foreheads. Um, I mean, who's going to stand in line for that? I mean, has anybody thought about that? No, it is not something visible. Hebrews 10, 16 says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. We read this, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their what? Minds, I will write them. Is it visible? No. It's not a vi- you, It's visible in the sense of their conduct of the people who actually have God's laws written on the heart and mind, but it's not visible in the sense of something on their foreheads you see. Ecclesiastes 9, 10 says, whatever your 
hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. In other words, the mind represents our thoughts, brothers and sisters, and the hand represents our doings, our work. All right, so somebody's going to get the mark on the forehead or on their hand. Why is that? Let's look here, Exodus 13.9. It shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial where? Between your eyes, your forehead, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. In other words, if the Lord's law is in your mind, it's going to be revealed in what you do and in what you say. Does that make sense? Isaiah 59, 6 and 7. Their works are works of iniquity and the act of violence is in their hands. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. So in other words, if the law of God is not in my mind, it's going to be revealed in my actions and in my thinking. Does that make sense? You're getting quiet on me. You're with me? All right. Let's take a look at the note. So remember, the, the mark is going to come on the forehead, which represents the mind, or on the hand representing our work. The note right below seven. Neither the mark of the beast nor the seal of God is outwardly visible. The forehead represents the mind. The hand is a symbol of work. On the hand and between the eyes are consistent symbols in Scripture for a person's thoughts and actions. A person who will receive the mark of the beast in his forehead by choosing to believe Sunday is holy in spite of Bible truth. You know, we're living in a time, my friends, that most Christians today do not view the Bible as infallible and inerrant. They're viewing it as something man wrote, or as one fellow told me, similar to Aesop's fables. Okay? So they're not putting stock in it. But let's continue. A person will be marked on the right hand when in spite of knowing the Sabbath truth, they choose to work on God's Sabbath or by outwardly keeping Sunday laws for convenient reasons, such as a job or family. Although the sign is visible to men, God will know who has which mark. In a sense, each person will mark himself. If I respect and regard God's Sabbath, Holy Sabbath, he will mark me as his own. If I regard the beast's false Sabbath, he will mark me as belonging to the beast. Is this making sense? You know, there might be somebody here right now who is really trembling at this and is really concerned about their job. My friend, God will take care of you. You prove yourself faithful to God, God will prove himself faithful to you. And you know, you need to spend more time with him in your word because it's really difficult to trust somebody you don't know. But you're going to find, as, as the Lord told us to do, taste and see that the Lord is, is good. He can be trusted, friends. The Lord can be trusted. Let's take a look now at number eight. How does Jesus determine if we are his servants? Uh, Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves Slaves or servants to obey. You are that one's slave or servant whom you obey. First John 2, 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to what? Walk just as he walked. In other words, whoever we're choosing to obey reveals who our Lord is. I can come to church all day long and yet go out there and live like the devil. And it doesn't make me a Christian. The devil can call himself a Christian. Doesn't make him one. Remember what I, what I like to say? You can stand in the middle of your garage and call yourself a car. It doesn't make you one. You can come to church make call yourself a Christian. It doesn't make you one. It's obeying God. It's making the choice to follow God that makes us Christians, friends. Spending time with Christ so he can live out his life through us. And then it's, it's abiding in Jesus and walking as he walked. What day did Jesus keep holy? You know, I have people come up to me and they say to me, you know, I'm, I'm curious. You go to church on Saturday? Yeah. Why do you go to church on Saturday? I say, because Jesus did. And I said, why do you go to church on Sunday? And they'll just look at me and they'll say, no one ever asked. It's giving them time to, to think, to think. John 14, 15, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. You see, what's happened, what's going to happen here? Before we go home, before we're translated out of this world, there's going to be a test of loyalty that's going to come upon each one of us. There's going to be a test, my friends. You know, when I was married, I made a vow. 
that I was going to be faithful to my wife. Okay? Now, the evidence that I love my wife is that I continue to what? Keep the vow. Does that make sense? And God is saying, the evidence that you love me is if you keep my commandments. And so, what we're seeing here is that the mark of authority for Rome is keeping her day. Now I'm going to show you the rest. Catholic record, September 1, 1923. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. The Sabbath is the sign that we belong to God, and Sunday is the sign of belonging to the papacy. Any questions? That, that, that is pretty clear, my friends. It is pretty clear, and I say this in a lot of love, but the reality is that we're living in a time when the whole world is marveling after the beast. We have to make sure that we're not part of that. Number nine, does anyone have the mark of the beast now? Revelation thirteen seventeen says, no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so what, what's happening is the test has not come upon us yet. The test is looming. The test is coming, right? And so the, the mark of the beast is not being given out yet until the test is upon us. But I want to ask you something. When do you prepare for a test? On the day of the test? I see Holly smiling over there. She's a college student. You don't prepare for the test on the day of the test. Leading up to the test, you have quizzes. And you got to pass the quiz. When I used to play sports, I was very heavy into sports. Played football and volleyball, coached them, basketball. I used to tell my players, the way you practice is the way you're going to perform. You practice like it's a game. You pour yourself out at practice, and when game time comes, you're going to have an edge. Right? Some of you are musicians. The term applies. The way you practice is the way you will perform. Brothers and sisters, you and I today are deciding how we're going to perform when the test hits us. If we're fudging today, we're going to fudge then. If we're not concerned with it now, we will not be concerned with it then. But if we are seeking to be faithful to God today, God will give us the strength to be faithful to Him then. Is this making sense? Very, very important. The way we practice is the way we will perform. By the way, one thing here that's very interesting is uh, you notice they won't be able to buy or sell. What do we call that today? An economic embargo. You know, today, if it is discovered that you are in any way aiding a terrorist, the governments can shut down your bank account and cut you off from it in, in, in a push of a button. Did you know that? We have in place now the technology to really cut people off from their ability to feed themselves. We've done it. We're, we're, we are there. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is coming soon. Christ is coming soon. Let's take a look at number 10. So it's not a forced issue yet, but we're preparing for either the mark or the seal. Number 10. What two things does the Antichrist power attempt to change? And I shared with you, Revelation 13 introduces the Antichrist power as a beast. But Daniel, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, it uses a different symbol. We've been studying that, and that is a little horn. Remember that? How the little began small as, uh, and then waxed great. What started out as pagan Rome became papal Rome. We talked about all that. And uh, he shall intend to change times and laws is what Daniel told us, one of the identifying marks of this end-time power, which the reformers referred to as Antichrist. He was going to change the law. Let's take a look at some things here. Papa Articulus the second, number 30, says, uh, the Pope is of so great authority and power that he is able to modify, declare, or interpret even divine laws. Modify? God's law? Really? He has such authority. By the way, do you remember this slide? You do. It came in handy now. Um, you notice some things are missing there. Let's take a look and read the note right before 10, then let's revisit this. Are you there? 
right below 10 to note. Daniel 7 reveals an Old Testament description of the Antichrist's power. It clearly predicts that the beast would attempt to change both God's laws and time. The papacy has tried to change God's law by, first, omitting the second commandment against veneration of images, two, shortening the fourth commandment from 94 words to just eight in order to avoid mentioning which day is the Sabbath, and three, dividing the tenth commandment into two commandments. The papacy attempted to change God's times by teaching people to recognize the first day of the week as the Sabbath instead of the seventh day. No mortal should ever dare to tamper with God's sacred law. And so I accidentally used this slide when, when I was trying to teach the one on the commandments. How many remember? Okay, now let's revisit it. Okay, open your Bibles to uh, uh, Exodus chapter uh, t- uh, 20. And this is the, t- the chapter on the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you're aware of this, but as you're turning your page... But Revelation 14, we looked at it, and, uh, and Elizabeth read uh, part of it to us. It talks about a threefold message, the last message that will go throughout all the world. It prophesied. Angel 3 was a warning to the world about receiving the mark of the beast. Do you realize that in your hearing, this prophecy is being fulfilled? The warning is being given. So let's take a look at Exodus chapter 20. And uh, uh, commandment number one is verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. Are you with me? Do you see that? If you take a look, I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt not have any strange gods before me. That lines up, doesn't it? Let's take a look at number two. You shall have, uh, number two says, or which is verse four, you shall not make for yourselves any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or anything that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children of the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. Take a look up here. But showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do you see that in number two? It's not there. It was, re- it was removed. In the Catholic Church, we had many mediators. We had images that we used to, we used to pray to to, uh, to protect us, to watch over us. I remember... We had a, a 1962 Ford Falcon. I'm dating myself. When we were kids. And, um, and you remember back then, cars were actually made of metal. And, uh, and on the dash, and, and so our image had a magnet on the bottom because it'd be kind of a drag to have your saint fall off while you're driving. And so we had it magnetized onto our dash. And before we went somewhere, we would pray to our saint to make sure that he would protect us. Am I the only one that did this? Anybody else in here is willing to admit that they prayed? Just you and I, Ron? We were the only good Catholics. And, um, but, but the second commandment, God forbids it. He forbids us bowing down and worshiping images. There is nothing we can compare God to, my friends. It's an insult to him. There's nothing, he is not like his creation. There's nothing we can come up with that symbolizes him that we can bow down to. And that was what the second commandment was about. Well, what they did is they got rid of it. Then they bumped up all the commandments. So now the fourth commandment, which was the Sabbath, became the third now. And it says, remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. They omitted all the rest. And by doing so, you don't know which day is the Sabbath, not only that, but you also omit the fact that he's the creator. And uh, hierarchy in the Catholic Church now teaches theistic evolution. God started out with evolution and then guided the process. So you did away with creation. But anyway, then, what, then now they had nine commandments. So you can't have that. And what they did is they went to number 10, uh, which is uh, in your Bible, it's, uh, it's verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And if you look, they broke it in half. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, and thou shalt not covet your neighbor's goods. They separated it. So now they are back to 10. Are you with me? Now, interestingly, you will see this everywhere. You'll see it in the catechism. Yet, oddly enough, in their Bible, in the Douay translation, it actually is the correct form of the Ten Commandments. And my mother was reading her Douay. And when she got to the law of God, began to read it, 
the red flag started going up, she began to realize there was a problem. And my mother's devotion was not, she was not a papist. My mother loved the Lord Jesus Christ. She just didn't have the truth. And when she encountered it in the Bible, my courageous mother made a course adjustment. And then and there, she became a Protestant. The Bible and the Bible only. She became a Protestant and led us there as well. This is Cardinal Gibbons. Gibbons is a straight shooter from the Catholic Mirror, Baltimore newspaper, December 23, 1893. Reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these alternatives. Either Protestantism and the keeping keeping holy of Saturday or Catholicity and keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. Amazing. Gibbons knew the issue. Protestants have forgotten it. This one is amazing. St. Catherine Catholic Church Sentinel. This is the the church uh, magazine. Uh, This church is located in Algonic, Michigan. And it was printed May 21, 1995. When I saw this, I called the church and asked if they would send me a newsletter. And the secretary informed me that they were no longer sending those out. Watch why. Perhaps the boldest thing, this is the pastor's page, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. This brother is about to say something that's true, but his history's off. It's the third century. But anyway, perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. The people who think that the scripture should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists and keep Saturday holy. Very interesting. But they, they just, they, he laid it out. And uh, I'm sure it got him into some trouble. Number 11. Because it was just, it really is, is an eye-opener, isn't it? Revelation, or, or excuse me, number 11. What was, what was God's criticism of his ancient priests or pastors? Malachi 2, 8 and 9. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to what? To stumble at the law. Brothers and sisters, if you're following your pastor, you are in deep waters. You with me? Don't trust your soul to any man. God has given you a mind. He has, he has given you the word and he has given you the Holy Spirit. Get into the Bible. Study the word of God for yourself. Prayerfully, on your knees, ask God to be your teacher. If you want to ask the pastor a question, fine. But whatever answer he gives you, you better look it up in the Bible and make sure that he's not giving you a bill of goods. Are you with me? So incredibly important that we understand that. Take a look at Hosea 4.6. This is very interesting. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have what? Rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Let's stop for a moment. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. This isn't just talking about being ignorant. This is a willful ignorance. This is a refusal to study the word of God to know the word, to know what it says. That's called willful ignorance. That, God refers to that as rejection. And then it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the what? The law of your God, I also will forget. Parents, listen to what I'm going to tell you. Sociology research teach us that our children will adopt our value system over 80% of the time. Truth is more caught than taught. So, in other words, you and I are an influence of someone else. It is vitally important we remain true to God, even if nobody else is. Be true to God because it's going to impact even our children. I want you to open your Bibles, if you will, for me, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13. This was the problem that Israel had, brothers and sisters. Israel was not keeping God's Sabbath holy. This is the reason why they went into Babylonian captivity. This is the reason why um, they were, um, the, the, the northern kingdom was removed by uh, the Assyrians. And now the northern kingdom doesn't even exist anymore. 
And so after they went into Babylonian captivity, they all were, uh, you remember they were there 70 years, then they went back. Ezra, Nehemiah were there helping them to build the temple and the walls. We talked about all that. Nehemiah was a court official in the court of Medo-Persia. And then he went back to help them finish the wall. He went back to, to Medo-Persia. Then he came back to check on progress. And when he came back, he felt the whole nation was backsliding, led by the, by the priesthood, by the way. The priesthood led it. Be careful. Make sure that your pastor's shooting straight. Now, Nehemiah talks about this. I'm picking up Nehemiah 13, verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah some people treading winepress on the Sabbath, bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys and wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day in which they were. Keep that in the back of your mind. In the day that they were selling provisions. Now, verse 16, it's going to talk about the Gentiles. The men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and they, is this ringing any bells? Sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Israel. And I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not our fathers do thus? And did not God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. You see, God's people in the past said, woohoo, we're members of the right club. We can do what we want. And they had separated themselves from God. Could this happen to us? By the way, did you notice, you could search the Bible from one end to the other. You look for a buying and selling issue, you're going to find them on only two points. Right in the verses we just read, and the embargo that the beast is going to put on God's people at the end. Cannot buy or sell. Are you with me? So critically important, the issue rests on the Sabbath. God's or the beast's Sabbath. All right, where did I leave you? Number 11, let's take a look at number 12. How does God's ancient leaders regard the great things of his law? Hosea 8.12 says, I have written for him the great things of my, but they were considered a strange thing. Even in his day, the things found in God's law were considered strange, just like they are today amongst many of God's supposed leaders. Number 13, what uh, specific solemn uh, rebuke did God give to the religious leaders regarding his holy Sabbath. Ezekiel 22.8 says, You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbath. Ezekiel 22.26, Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and the unholy. They have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. And what's happening is that people are putting tradition above God's law. And write this, this reference down, Mark 7, 5 through 8. God says that people that put tradition about, above his law worship him in vain. Their worship is not acceptable to him. Number 14. What specific sin does God command his leaders to denounce? Isaiah 58, verses 1, 13, and 14 says, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a... Trumpet, tell my people their transgression. If you turn away your foot from the, from what? The Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. The Sabbath is about a relationship. God wants to spend time with you and me. He wants us to shut everything else out. And it is through that relationship that you and I are transformed and prepared to go to heaven. How many want to go to heaven with Jesus? Let's remember our date with our blessed Savior. Number 15. When you decide to accept Jesus and fully follow Him, what happens? Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Rest. Shabbat. You will find Shabbat for yourself. When we accept Jesus, my friends, the Sabbath is a sign of the new birth. It's a sign of conversion that we have made the decision to rest in Jesus. That he not only is our creator, but our recreator. All right, let's take a look at our, uh, our response to Jesus. Before you can say no to the mark of the beast, 
you must say yes to the seal of God. Jesus is waiting at the door of your heart, my friend, for an answer. Will you decide now to move under his glorious Sabbath banner as evidence that you have accepted him as your creator and your savior? Who's willing to do that? Amen. My friends, I can't be more earnest when I say to you that the test is coming. And don't expect this to be some long, drawn-out buildup. When it hits us, it's going to hit us fast and hard. We need right now to make the choice each day to be loyal. As we close out uh, with our, our final, with our hymn, our closing hymn, listen carefully to the words, the appeal found in that hymn. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.